welcome to episode 39 of the MedSec Podcast. You join me, your host, Karadeep Singh Badwell. And on this episode, I have Marcel Gehung, CEO and co-founder of Cited, a Cambridge-based company that uses artificial intelligence to find biomarkers that detect cancer and other diseases earlier. Marcel, a scientist and serial entrepreneur, holds a PhD in machine learning in healthcare from the University of Cambridge. He was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, won the Alexander Fleming Prize from the Gates Foundation for his contribution to public health, and the Pre-Galian Award for the best medical technology with Cited's core product called Cytosponge, a novel test for the early detection of cancer in the esophagus. On this episode, he discusses the precancerous Barrett esophagus alongside the causes of this condition, the minimally invasive technique his company has developed for the detection of esophageal cancer, together with a comparison to traditional methods of endoscopy, the process of acquiring funding for his startup, how acid reflux and heartburn could be early warning signs of the disease, his advice for founders, and the importance of developing different types of teams at various stages of your business. Welcome to the show, Marcel. How are you today? Hey, currently doing very good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So to begin with, what is Cited and how exactly did you come up with the idea for the company? So Cited is a company working on early cancer diagnostics, particularly for cancer in the GI tract. Um, we've initially focused on a particular type of upper GI cancer, which is called sphagid adenocarcinoma which has a very well-known uh, precursor condition or precancerous condition called Barrett's esophagus. And Barrett's esophagus is usually caused um, as a result of long-term heartburn or reflux symptoms. So acid from the stomach basically going into the esophagus and attacking the inner lining of the esophagus. And um, one of the main hurdles in the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus is that um, to this very date, it primarily relies on carrying out an upper GI endoscopy. So inserting a tube with a camera um, into the patient's mouth and basically visually inspecting um, their esophagus and their stomach and, and taking focal biopsies. So uh, tissue samples from very specific areas in the esophagus or stomach. And um, we're working on a range of technologies, but one technology in particular as well, which enables you to test these patients minimally inv- in a minimally invasive way. So without requiring an endoscopy. And that's a capsule-based technology where patients, instead of undergoing an endoscopy, um, can swallow a small capsule, which is attached to a strong thread. Um, after a few minutes in the stomach, uh, the capsule basically dissolves and a small piece of um, textured foam expands. And that textured foam is then withdrawn by the attached string and it samples cells from the top of the stomach and the entire length of the esophagus. And what we can then do opposed to an endoscopy is we get, we get a sample from everything that's basically happening in the upper GI tract of that individual patient. And we can then test those cells um, using a number of different biomarker technologies we've developed um, in our laboratory and, and give, can give the clinician, but also the patient an indication on where they might be on that spectrum from having pre-cancer all the way to potentially having advanced cancer as well and making sure that they get the right clinical treatment um, or guidance further down the line and after that. Um, so that's in a nutshell what the company basically does. And there's quite a few things um, we have been doing over the last three years or so as well to give you some context on that the company um, was a result of my PhD work um, here in Cambridge where I partnered with uh, Rebecca Fitzgerald who's a professor for cancer prevention and Maria Donovan who's a pathologist here in Cambridge both of them have spent the last 20 years or so in in the upper GI world and particularly in the cancer prevention and early detection field and I started working on some data which basically came out of their work in my PhD 
And in 2018 or so, we started to have, have the first conversations about there being some scope of forming a company around what we've all been working on. Um, and then fast forward in 2020, we actually closed our first seed round, which was led by Morningside Venture Capital, which is based out of Boston as well. Um, and yeah, that was quite a large seed round. It was around 8.7 million and it enabled us to really, well, kickstart off the ground, basically. And we, we were able to achieve quite a lot of things in the last three years as well. The technologies we're using are now in broad use across the UK as well in, in over 55 or 60 sites across the UK. And there's quite a lot of new R&D going on, as I just briefly mentioned before, um, but also geographical expansion. So um, it's been an intense and, 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 and actually quite tight journey over the last five years from the first idea of the company to when we actually started it. But, but yeah, it's, we are where we are today, essentially. So what exactly were the main challenges that you faced when trying to bring Cytos Sponge to the market? And was regulatory approval one of those challenges? We actually partnered with a large Matic organization um, quite early on in that journey. Um, so they were able to take some, some, some overhead on the regulatory side away from us when it comes to the cell collection device itself. Um, which actually worked really worked in our in our favor because time to market was significantly reduced for for what we needed at the time. Um, we did have some very interesting challenges because I really expected the company to be more of an R and D organization for the first one to two years without us having to go to market actually. Um, but what happened is when we started the company, COVID obviously started shortly after that as well, and it resulted in no endoscopies happening more across the country. You know in England, nor in Scotland, nor in, in most other countries, actually. Um, so we very quickly were approached by a number of national health, uh, national health systems, basically, on um, using it to triage waiting lists for patients that are supposed to get an endoscopy, but now can't get an endoscopy and ideally should receive something that can be done by one healthcare professional in an office-based setting. And conceptually and in clinical trials that was all set up as well but your point on regulatory hurdles was it was an interesting one because we obviously have one regulatory hurdle which was on the medical device itself um and we also had one on the diagnostic testing in in, in a lab basically so we within, within months we had to come up with a with a plan on the entire vertically integrated value chain and how we basically make that happen you know without stepping on any toes of any of any uh, accreditations or certifications that might be required so one of the ways how we fast tracked it interestingly and this was only enabled or this was only enabled by the capital we raised in early 2020 was actually acquiring a laboratory instead of building our own one it would have probably taken us 18 months um to get the relevant accreditation in place to really then do clinical testing on on routine clinical samples of patients um but yeah, because of the timing of COVID um, coming together quite nicely on this as well, we ended up acquiring a, a UK-based laboratory, which enabled us to get all of these accreditations and, and requirements out of the box and really then together with the device, which was a, which was uh, already um, CE marked at the time as well, we could, I mean, in hindsight, I would probably say we almost went live overnight. Um, but uh, yeah, it was... It was very challenging to do it in a very short amount of time, particularly because most of the focus of everyone was around COVID at the time. It wasn't necessarily on, you know, better or faster or early oncology diagnostics. So what would you say are the common symptoms of esophageal cancer that people, you know, perhaps, you know, think that this is the top time that I should get a test if I start feeling these symptoms? What would you say those are? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm obviously not a healthcare professional, so <laughs> um, no guidance on that front. But um, one of the main things which people 
underestimate is that just long-term heartburn and reflux symptoms, even if they're self-medicated with over-the-counter medications such as Reni or Gaviscone, um, can cause uh, Barrett's, Barrett's esophagus as a condition. Um, problem swallowing, um, indigestion, particularly, as I said, reflux and heartburn are, are amongst the key symptoms for very early stage disease. And early stage disease doesn't necessarily mean you have cancer already, but it means you might have something precancerous, which can then progress into something that becomes, you know, dysplasia and potentially develops into an actual carcinoma as well. Um, it is something where, you know, maybe, maybe it would be interesting to hear what you would use, uh, think about this as well. But we have been very, very good over the last 10, 15 years at raising awareness for lower GI cancer. So particularly colon cancer, obviously, as well. And there's national screening programs using colonoscopy and fit testing for that as well. Um, but if you, interest, if you look at the prevalence development and the incidence development of, of upper GI cancers over the last few years, where, for example, Barrett's esophagus is still rapidly going up in incidence and prevalence as well. Um, if you go you know, on, on the high street and you ask a random person, did you know that heartburn or reflux can actually lead to cancer in the long run as well? They will probably tell you no. So it's quite interesting that a lot of the fundamental problems are in the, in the question you just raised as well, which is if patients have certain symptoms, the first thing they think is not, I should go to my GP and see you know, whether they have another test they can offer me as well. A lot of them just go to their local store and buy some Gaviscon or Reni or proton pump inhibitors basically over the counter, which doesn't really fix the problem in most cases. It just delays the symptoms, but the underlying root cause that you know you have acid going from your stomach into the esophagus is obviously not fixed by that. I agree with you. It's a lot of people perhaps aren't aware that these symptoms can lead to something like that. You know, they will keep taking the over-the-counter medication and just think, oh, maybe it's their diet or maybe there's something else until it's like getting yeah. really, really bad and painful. But then as we both know, when you're at that stage, it's at that point where, you know, it's not really as curable as it was if you detected it earlier on. No, precisely. Particularly, you know, you say it, particularly with GA cancer as well. Most patients actually, unfortunately, present at very late stage disease, which means they can't swallow anymore, which unfortunately often already means that they have a very large tumor sitting somewhere in their esophagus, which most likely has metastasized already as well. So with, with five-year or two-year survivals being less than 20%, and, and something being right in the middle of your body, you know, where actually there's no innovation of your esophagus, so you don't feel any pain about it. It's just, yeah, it's, it's one of the problems why it has been, a, has been one of the silent killers alongside certain brain cancers and pancreatic cancers for, for the last many years. And, and there also just hasn't been, there hasn't been enough prevention or awareness around it in the first place, not even talking about the tests we're doing as well. It's just the fact that people go, go to their GP or go to see a doctor if they have a certain symptom profile as well. So since you started working in this area, what have you learned about cancer, more specifically esophageal cancer, that you will perhaps say is not so much common knowledge? Um, that's a very interesting question, actually. I think one of the main things, and I will get to the specific question in a second, one of the main things I've learned is that if you work in oncology diagnostics, there is a lot of there's a lot of nice to have diagnostics, which people are working on out there as well, which are not going to change the patient pathway in a material way. So they're nice add-ons, basically. They might give some reassurance to the doctor or to the patient, basically. But if something does not truly change patient management for the better, or it really offsets health economics or costs in another place, basically, 
uh, it's very difficult to get traction in conversations when you actually want to go to market with something like that as well even though from a scientific perspective it sounds cool or it sounds like it might add value as well um the way how we actually measure value in the real world in a, in a sort of value-based healthcare system i think is quite in the end is quite constrained and i think in the very beginning when we started i walked into this you know with a bit of a <laughs> coming from academia just before that as well coming from a very innovation oriented approach into this as well um and not so much and that you know i had to catch up on that quite quickly not so much from a clinical pathway driven approach as well as if it doesn't change patient management and or if it doesn't save costs or you know few criteria you, it will it will be very unlikely that you will, that you can convince someone to actually do it in the real world um i think in in specifically to the question as well um is I think it is actually it is actually the amount of patients which actually already have the precancerous form is something which most people don't know. Depending on which data sets you look at as well, one to two percent of the general population in the Western world actually have Barrett's esophagus, which is actually an insane number. I mean, if we look at other, you know, if we look at if we look at other um, conditions as well um, and how prevalent they are in the general population as well, then one to two percent is actually a very 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 big number as well particularly if those patients then have a higher risk to progress to cancer, which is 0.5 to 1% per patient year. Um, and I think the first time I ever myself came across that number of what the actual general prevalence, um, general population prevalence of Barrett's is, um, I, almost, I, I almost thought there was a comma wrong and there was a decimal in the wrong place as well, because 0.5 to 1% just sounded, sounded like it's too much, basically. But it shows you that how much of a creeping public health problem it actually has become over the last year. If you think that in the Western world, we have 400 million people with chronic heartburn and reflux symptoms as well. So starting a business and growing a business in itself is quite a big challenge. And being that you were relatively young when you started this business, how exactly did you go about overcoming these challenges as someone who's relatively young, may not necessarily have the funding in place or the experience? And for the listeners today, are perhaps looking to go on that path. What advice would you offer to them? Um, I think the advice which I generally give people, and I think co-founders, you know, there's always something where um, there's obviously different types of founding teams. And I'm sure you have seen this before as well. There's founding teams where one person is leaving academia and the other one stay in academia, or some people have clinical roles and they remain in their full-time clinical roles as well. I think one of the main advices which I I'm now giving to myself as well is is to make sure that there is a team in place from the very beginning that really helps the the person that is ultimately responsible as a, as the CEO and potentially as the founder CEO to to try and take some weight off their shoulder as well and it's quite fuzzy actually to define sometimes what that what that weight is but um, it really comes down to how much the founding team is actually involved in the day to day running of the company particularly in the early stages. Um, and how much trust there is as well. In our case, you know, I, I mean, our, our founding team is, is 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 excellent as well. Both of them stayed in their clinical and academic capacities, which is, you know, exactly what is needed from them as well, because that's going to push the company forward as well. But it took me quite some time to build a team within the organization where I can go to bed and wake up in the morning and 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 just have have trust in myself, trusting other people, if you see what I mean. So it's just you know, going to bed and waking up and not worrying what happens in the lab, you know, more than necessary, except if there is something which I should worry about. Uh, and, and building a healthy relationship to that as well, 
is almost something where I would tell every any I would tell anyone is you can't prepare yourself for that as much. It might vary by personality type, and some people might be more resilient to that as well. But you really have to do it to go on the learning journey and and yeah, understand how your own personality type fits into that role as well. And maybe also that some co-founders don't have to become CEOs of companies either. They can become CTOs, CSOs, you know, chief medical officers, um, and an external CEO can be brought in as well. Uh, I think it's just very important to be able to listen inside oneself and don't get dragged away by, you know, flashy LinkedIn posts about cool things happening in the world as well. And then thinking one has to live up to these posts because the, the lived reality of the individual is always going to be completely different as we all know as well. But it's, it's, it's very often overshadowed by the fact of spending more than one or two hours on LinkedIn every day as well and seeing what other people are doing and then thinking, well, if I now start a, if I now, if I now start a company with an idea, or I, have, I have to be the CEO. Well, no, you don't have to. Like, there's many other ways to build a company as well. And actually being too, too linear about this as well and not open enough um, to really understand what's best for the company in the long run probably does more harm to yourself or to oneself before it does harm to the company but then eventually it will also do harm to the company as well as well and it i mean i think everyone's constantly learning about themselves and on that journey as well and so am i um yeah there's not a lot of things i would have done any different but there's certainly a lot of things which if there would be something new in the future at some point as well i would look at it with completely different eyes and say well I think this is a necessary evil to be ticked off at this point in time because otherwise we're going to have problems down the road. Uh, sorry, this was a more, slightly more long-winded answer, but I think it, it, it covers my own experience to some extent. No, I completely agree with you on that point is because you have to go out and make mistakes to learn. You know, if you don't make those mistakes, you're probably going to make those mistakes much later on in your business where the impact is going to be much larger than is if you've done it in the early days. So yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And the second point that you made is, Hire a team. As an individual, there's so many. There's only so many things an individual can learn. And there's only so many hours in the day. And if you try to do everything yourself, you're severely limiting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, what are your plans for the future of the company? Are you perhaps looking to go into other forms of cancer, release additional products, or maybe target different jurisdictions in the world? Uh, our main focus is currently on other jurisdictions. Um, the the main, yeah, the, the main thing is other jurisdictions at this point in time. We are looking at some related diagnostic tests, which we can, you know, where we can test cells from the upper GI tract with similar testing, you know, modalities and, and methodologies and the ways how to collect these cells as well. There's also a couple of, you know, more blue sky thinking around other diseases in the GI tract, which we're looking at as well, also lower GI tract. Um, but for now, we're really focused on, on the upper GI tract as well. And building the blueprint of getting it into other geographical into other geographical territories as well. The US is one of the main things we're focusing on right now as well and, and, and building them out in a way that it, it's essentially becoming one of our big next milestones in, in the company trajectory. So with esophageal cancer, is there a particular region of the world or a particular population type where it's maybe more prevalent than others? Interestingly, yes. So there is... So esophageal cancer has, has two subtypes. One of them is called squamous cell carcinoma for the interested medical listener. And the other one is esophageal adenocarcinoma. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma is really the one where um, we look into the Eastern world. You know, where we look at Southeast Asia, we're looking at Africa, um, Middle East, 
as I mentioned, Far East, essentially, too. And then we have, uh, this was squamous cell carcinoma, and then we have adenocarcinoma, which is really prevalent in the Western world. There's a couple of different reasons, some of them better understood than others, why the risk factor profile is different. There's, there's something about hot beverage consumption and alcohol consumption and diet and, and processed foods and obesity and, and some other factors as well. Uh, on a global level, interestingly, squamous cell carcinoma is, is, is a bigger problem than adenocarcinomas, but adenocarcinomas is what really impacts the Western world. Uh, we are working on, we have for now mostly focused on adenocarcinoma. Uh, we are also looking at squamous cell carcinoma as well, uh, slightly mindful of understanding what's the best way for a company like us coming out of the UK and sort of like being very embedded in the Western world as well on how we operate in some of these countries as well in the mid to long-term future. So if we really want to get something like this off the ground in, let's say, India or in some countries in the Middle East as well, is how, how will that work for us? We're spending some time thinking about that as well. Um, but yeah, the main difference we really have is squamous cell carcinoma, which happens in the Eastern world and in the so-called Israel cancer belt um, on a map and uh, adenocarcinoma, which is the Western world. And primarily we're talking about Europe, UK, and US for that. So I know it's a question a lot of people ask, but what can one do to perhaps reduce the risk of getting cancers? Is the typical things of, you know, have a good diet, do exercise. Perhaps are there other things that people can maybe start doing that you would recommend? Well, I think you said it there already. You know, have a good diet, uh, get, get go out, exercise. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for SFGA cancer, those are your risk factors, you know, don't smoke, you know, going outside doesn't mean you should go smoking, don't smoke, uh, alcohol intake is something we understand very well these days, uh, increases your risk profile. Uh, so it, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's the answer is very simple, but you already said it, you know, it's the very obvious things as well, exercise, alcohol, diet, smoking, all of the things which, you know, you and I also grew up with being preached everywhere on, on not doing these things, basically, they still remain the main risk factors of, uh, of cancer, and in particular also for esophageal cancer. There, there, is a, there is a question in there as well, you know, from a public health perspective in the long run on whether, on whether, we, should, whether we should do more early detection or more prevention, which are obviously, you know, technically quite different. It's a big difference whether you want to find everyone who has early stage disease or whether you want to avoid everyone having early stage disease in the first place as well. Probably the mid to long-term solution is a, is a hybrid between the two of them. Um, but one of the main things is, is having, having a sensible lifestyle and probably, and, and we talked about this earlier, if someone has worrying symptoms, actually going and you know, seeking medical, uh, medical, medical assistance as well and medical attention because most early stage disease creeps into something more serious because we think, well, you know, it's probably going to go away by itself. But if it hasn't after a few months, then there might be a good reason why it hasn't gone away. So your location of Cambridge is quite a big scientific innovation hub. You know, I know that you went university there, but what is it about Cambridge that makes it such a great place for science? Is it the location? Is it the university? Or would you say it's a combination of things? I think talent is certainly one, one point here as well, and particularly in the life sciences. They're you know, directly out of university and the associated ecosystem around it as well. And the density is obviously, um, is obviously really, really high. 
I think there's a few places in the UK where you could start a similar venture and you know, the same type of argument applies. There, there is some intrinsic merit and, you know, I think everyone knows that it's a bit of an unspoken truth, which sort of everyone knows, but it, you know, it, it does help being a spin out of, of some of, of one of the big universities as well, because people give the science, you know, irrespective of that another university can produce a similar credibility of science as well. They, they, there is an intrinsic attribution to, to additional merit basically coming out of that as well. And you, that that interestingly has the consequence of people not necessarily exploiting that, that that additional merit, but it attracts other people into the ecosystem that seek for opportunities to invest or opportunities to acquire or opportunities to collaborate in this specific ecosystem as well. So for us, it was a bit of a no-brainer because it's a spin out of Cambridge. Um, but otherwise, there there actually have been a few companies I have been have been advising over the last year or so and i said to them actually relocating to a place like cambridge oxford or london can actually be quite helpful because just being part of the network and being part of the ecosystem brings some additional uplift in in the most unforeseen areas you know whether that's investor interests whether that's connections and so on and so on and so on so as i said fast this was a was a very pragmatic choice um wasn't really an option for me to go back to Germany. I don't think you can build something similar in Germany um, where you also have the good connections over to the US as well and being able to raise capital from there. Um, and then because obviously science was from Cambridge, it was, was a no-brainer for us. So in terms of your products, what would you say are other applications for it outside of oncology? Have you explored any other areas of healthcare where maybe this technology can be used? We have looked at that, but not very conclusively honestly we we also realized that um you know quite early on that particularly in the economic climate we all have been moving into right now focus is focus is essential so uh you know every tangential idea which sometimes crops up here or there as well um starting to build a good relationship to how how you suppress these ideas and how you put them back on the shelf where they might belong um it's something we don't really face as a problem that often anymore these days. But uh, always when you look at something we have been building as well, and you think, oh, this would be really interesting to use for X, to use for Y, to use for Z as well. Uh, the, the common barrier then to actually pursuing this as well is that the activation cost to actually doing that is a lot higher than it looks like. And you know this, you know, someone looks, someone sees something cool and says, oh, it would be really cool if we use this for X, Y, Z. Like, yeah, it would be cool, but is it actually feasible? And can you plot a path from A to Z, you know, and, and understand all of the hurdles before you go into, you know, jump into the deep end and, and see whether there might be something coming out, something out of it as well. So for us that, you know, we toyed around with ideas, but we never really go close, you know, the execution or actual materialization of them in the first place. So when you first came up for the idea of your company, when it was, let's just say, something you perhaps wrote down on paper or something that was in your mind and you brought it to fruition, how do you deal with the doubts of that initial phase? Because I'm guessing there would have been points in your life where you were growing the company and maybe you were having second opinions about it or thinking maybe it's not going to work out. How do you deal with that process? Yeah, I, I generally say to people, the highs are higher, the lows are lower. And when you walk into it and you have a scale from one to 10, um, you probably realize that your one to 10 spectrum of things that are 
palatable and enjoyable and endurable will, will probably evolve quite quickly as well. Hopefully the upper bounds will be pushed outwards as well. And one thing which can be promised and is for certain is that the lower power, lower bound is going to be pushed further down as well. I think, I do think that personality type plays some role in it as well. I would, I would weirdly say that intrinsically, even though, you know, I have a certain entrepreneurial mindset as well, I'm generally on the more risk averse side, whatever that actually means, because I, three years ago, I thought I understood what the word risk averse means. Now, looking back in the last three years as well, and certain decisions we have, um, we went for as well, which were the best decisions, but probably not the, the, the lowest risk ones. I, I try to I try to understand what actually, you know, risk adversity might mean in my, my specific context, but it, it really comes down to a question, you know, we touched on earlier as well as what's the support network around you as well. Do you have people around you that have done it before, have seen it before that can really help carrying you on your own path for as long as you should be on that path. So you know, not everyone needs to stay on board with a company forever, basically. And I think that's just an important thing which people have to go. If you go, if you go with the with the with the with the thinking into starting a company, that also running the company and building the company is a choice. You know, it's not something you then have to do all the way until the end, basically, because you might not be the best person to do that job all the way into all the way until the end. It's just something where it's a constant balance of frustration, expectation management, facing the challenges that are then, you know, required to be resolved as well. How do you get external advice in solving these challenges in an appropriate way? Um, so, yeah, I think support network plays a massive role and, 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 but also being able to really express your problems to the people around you, because one thing is having good people around you that actually are able to listen and help you. The other one is, people not being able to articulate or wanting to articulate that they actually go through a tough time and that there's a tough problem they don't know how to solve. Um, and that's as much of a learning experience in trying to figure out how you communicate that with the world around you. And similarly, which people do you consciously choose to communicate that to after that as well? And if you don't have any of these people in place, where do you find them? And, and it comes back, sorry, to another question as well, which is why Cambridge, Oxford, London in the UK are very good places for these companies because statistically you have a higher density of people that will understand your problems, which is certainly the case in, you know, for me as well. Like the, the people I know here and have become very good friends as well. They, they've gone through similar experiences. They, they can give perspective to it as well. And, and, and that has certainly helped me personally, but it's something which I would advise to, to everyone. Yeah, certainly so. Running a business, of course, keeps you very busy. But what do you get up to outside of work? You're based in Cambridge. Do you perhaps punt on the river? Are there any other sports that you may play? Yeah, it's actually quite disappointing. I think I'm living here for five and a half years and I've probably been punting once or twice. But also I, 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 did, uh, I did do my undergrad in Tübingen in Germany, in southwest Germany, if someone wants to look it up, which is a very nice university town. But it has a river as well, and it's one of the few places in Europe where you also can do punting. Um, so I did quite a lot of punting uh, at that time. Um, it, it interestingly becomes, yeah, I, I, I didn't really find time for like a full-time hobby in the last three years as well. You know, I, I started picking up the odd thing here and there again. I'm, I'm, I'm into aquariums quite a bit as well, so I'm, I'm trying to, to entertain myself um, with with 
you know, building, fixing and destroying aquariums in my free time as well. Similarly, on the DIY side as well, we, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite enjoy fixing kitchen taps or, you know, fixing, fixing boilers without, um, you know, without trying to injure myself <laughs> while doing so. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's something where, it's something where some of the process of which is part of my work as well, I really intrinsically, you know, deeply enjoy and I could spend my free time doing that all, all day. Um, but I've probably picked up lots of little individual bits and pieces of, of entertaining me in my free time and trying to, trying to distract my, my mind of other things um, and making sure I stay sane. So, you know, aquariums, DIY, and, and, and one of the other thing here and there is basically what, what, what keeps me afloat, I would say. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Marcel. So to wrap up today, what one piece of advice would you leave the listeners with? Excellent question. I, I think that people should try, you know, even if they embark on a, on a, on a journey like the one, and this might sound a bit repetitive because it's what, you know, what you, what you, what you get preached to by, by many people out there as well uh, on the internet as well, but it's, it's when people start a job or start working in a job as well is, is trying to understand, you know, whether that job is really in line with their core values and core beliefs in the long run as well. And I don't really, I don't really mean purpose that much as well, but it's an element of, you know, if, if, if someone's happiness around work and satisfaction and fulfillment comes from working with great people and, one realizes that at some point in their life that it's really down to working with great people for them, then being aware of that and being also mindful that it then doesn't matter really in what sector you're working, but it then really matters what people you're working with. I think is utterly important to focus on because people otherwise, you know, we're coming in a generation, we're coming, you know, you and I are probably living in a generation where um, it's almost like that what, what, what the previous definition of success has been, and we all have been, trying to get successful now these days is happiness to some extent like if you're not happy you're not successful in what you're doing as well it sounds really silly but i think there is something happening on you know everyone trying to find something that has purpose and and fulfills them in some ways as well but actually doing so requires a lot of people to listen inside themselves and it doesn't require them to look at what other people are doing as well so if you really enjoy working with people then work with people if you really enjoy working with a specific thing, you know, whether that's software or hardware or something like that as well, then put all of your passion into that as well, because a compromise will constantly drain, t- uh, drain energy over time as well. And at the end of the day, there's only that much energy we probably all have in ourselves. So um, conscious that, as I said, this was probably something which is slightly obvious as well, but I think listening inside oneself is, is, very important on on any journey and should be done whenever whenever possible great philosophical advice marcel thank you very much (laughs) for your time thank you grandy thanks for having me thank you for listening to episode 39 of the medtech podcast if you have not already done so please subscribe if you wish to learn more about marcel you can connect with him on linkedin or visit his company website the links of which are provided in the description if there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in future and feel free to reach out.